Good morning. Great to be with you. Keep a Bible open, would you? Or have it open, get it open to this passage that was just read uh, by uh, Suai, Romans 11, verses 33 to 36, where we are this morning in a sermon that has received the most curious sermon title to date. Did you see the title for this morning's sermon? Dairy Maids, Cows, and the Glory of God. Well, come on now. I like that. A little random, we'll explain what that's all about. It has something to do with something Martin Luther said, I'll just give you an indicator there, but we are a couple of weeks now into this sermon series celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, launched in 1517, it is the year 2017 as a newsflash, and we are celebrating the 500th, Reforma- 500th anniversary of the Reformation with many, many Christians literally all around the world. We are celebrating the Reformation by focusing on what, have been, what has become known as the five solas of the Reformation that we're talking about in terms of five obsessions of extraordinary faith. Key insights of Reformational faith, really of biblical and historic Christian faith. We've looked at a number of these, four so far, sola scriptura, scripture alone, sola gratia, Grace alone, sola fide, faith alone. Last week, of course, we looked at solus Christus, Christ alone. And today, we come now, of course, to the fifth and the final of our solas, the classic solas of the Reformation. But I should say, we don't come this Sunday to the end of our sermon series. We have two more Sundays in the sermon series. Next Sunday, I'm really excited, we're going to have a guest preacher Dr. Hans Matawame from Covenant College is going to be speaking at the Center for Pastor Theologians Conference that's going to be taking uh, place the following week or the, uh, the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday after he preaches next Sunday on the 22nd. He's going to be talking about the power of the Word of God. It's also special. He is Nigerian from the Igbo tribe, and we have a number of Nigerians in our congregation that are from the Igbo tribe, so that will be fun for us as a congregation. And then on the 29th of October, we will wrap up the sermon series on what is officially Reformation Sunday, and I will be preaching on a sixth sola of the Reformation. Don't tell anybody I've added a sixth sola. It's free with the series, right? But super important for Protestants that love Protestantism, I believe, to hear this sixth sola added to these other five, sola ecclesia. The church alone. So we want to have a strong finish. We're looking forward to a strong finish to the sermon series in a couple of weeks from now. But today, we take up the fifth, and technically, what is the, the final of the five solas, which is this soli deo gloria. To God alone be glory. The Bible, of course, has a few things to say about God getting glory, Right? Massive theme. You could be here all day uh, kind of elaborating and expounding and applying on this all-comprehensive theme of God getting the glory and God alone. It has huge implications for, well, just about everything. But what I want to do in this message this morning is I want to help you appreciate what was so revolutionary about Soli Deo Glory at the time of the Reformation. It wasn't just a theological cliche at the time of the Reformation. In fact, of all of the five 
solas of the Reformation. Listen, this fifth sola, soli deo gloria, had the most transformative effect on society and on culture. It had the biggest impact on the world, you might say, outside the church. Sola Scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, huge impact on the life of the church, which, of course, spills over. But soli deo gloria, the way the Reformation, the re- way the Reformers understood it, it had a huge impact on the life outside the church, and culture, and society. Literally, the way culture and society is arranged and structured, it is no overstatement to say this, that soli deo gloria, to God alone be glory, as the Reformers understood it, revolutionized West, the Western world. It's not an overstatement. How so? Well, to put it very simply, to put it very bluntly, the Reformers' commitment to soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory, as they understood it, it did something really, really profound. It destroyed the dualism of secular and sacred. Destroyed the dualism of secular and sacred. And so what that then did is that dignified, it destroys a dualism between secular and sacred. And what that then does is it dignifies every kind of human activity, every kind of vocation, every kind of job, every kind of human activity. So that everything has dignity, you might say, or sanctity. Everything you and I do has dignity and sanctity, not just the spiritual stuff, Not just the churchy stuff, but everything. Let me lay this out so you appreciate just how revolutionary this is, that soli deo gloria is not just a theological cliche in the Reformation. You see, for medieval Catholicism, late medieval Catholicism, that, that where the Reformation sort of emerged out of and spoke into and tried to, of course, reform, there were in late medieval Catholicism, let's put it kind of simply, there were two different kinds of activities, human activities. There were, on the one hand, the secular activities. On the other hand, the sacred activities. The secular activities, eating, drinking, shopping, cleaning out your refrigerator, though they didn't have those in the 16th century, studying for your algebra exam, paying taxes, going to the dentist, secular activities. Then there were the sacred activities, praying, meditating, worshiping at church, studying the Bible, sharing your faith, the kinds of things that went on, of course, in monasteries and at churches. The kind of things that monks and nuns and priests and popes did, but not not ordinary folks who were doing secular activities. Not them. You see, this basic distinction or dualism was present. It kind of structured late medieval Catholicism and the world at the time, the Christian Christendom at the time. It shaped the world as people experienced it, and so it shaped their lives, shaped the way they thought about their vocation, shaped the way they thought about their activities, shaped the way they thought about church and its significance, shaped the way they thought about their own 
vocation or job or tasks or spheres of influence, this basic dualism between secular and sacred. And of course, in the late medieval era, what was more important, the secular stuff or the sacred stuff? Of course. They often talk about it as two-tier, like a two-story building with the secular stuff on the first floor, you might even say in the basement, and all the sacred activities up on the second floor with all the, the lights and the skylights closer to God, more important, more significant. Basic way in which people in the late Middle Ages thought about their lives, their vocation, their calling, their work, and all of the rest of it. And Luther took major issue with this. For Luther, everything, everything, regardless of the kind of activity it was, whether it was secular or sacred, everything was to be done solely Deo Gloria, for the glory of God. So that means, think about that, every form of employment, every activity, Every task, all of it could be done in service of God, not just the spiritual tasks that the priests and the monks do. All could be solely Deo glory. And Luther had a provocative way of putting this. He had a provocative way of putting most everything, right? But he had a very provocative way of putting this. This is what he said. It's where I get the title for this morning's message. He wrote this shortly after launching the Reformation in 1517 with his 95 Theses. He writes this now famous sentence, quote, a dairy maid, a dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God. Might sound quaint to us with our 2017 ears, 21st century ears, but back then, Radical and revolutionary. Priests can glorify God. Popes can glorify God. Monks and nuns can glorify God because they're doing like glorifying God kinds of stuff. But like the dairy maid who milks the cow, how pedestrian, how menial. What are you talking about? Glorifying God with that. Luther's saying the dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God just like any theologian or pope or priest or pastor. A super simple statement. Revolutionary in the life of the church. Revolutionary in the history of the Western world. Not just priests or popes or religious people doing religious things glorifying God, y'all. But everyone, no matter what it is that they're doing, and to drive home the point, Luther likewise liked to drive home points, not just to say provocative things, but he liked to not tap little thumbtacks into a bulletin board. He liked to screw screws in theologically. So this is what he says after his dairy maid can milk cows to the glory of God, the very next sentence, check this out. If your job then is shoveling manure, then do your best and shovel that manure to the glory of God. Provocative way of putting the same point, isn't it? But be encouraged and take that in. Stay-at-home moms with diapers, it feels like shoveling manure, I know. Some of the rest of us can feel like our jobs are shoveling manure. At times, every calling, every vocation, every form of life, every task, it can feel like shoveling manure. 
But here is the insight, soli deo glory, and not a theological abstraction, a world-changing insight from the Bible that even the most non-glamorous, seemingly insignificant, seemingly least spiritual, difficult, tedious, undesirable jobs, they can be and they should be done to the glory of God. Amazing. And so catch this. Soli Deo Gloria for Luther and the other reformers, it does something really precious. It guarantees the dignity and the sanctity of every human activity. It guarantees the dignity and sanctity the specialness, you might say, of every human activity. Because all of life can glorify God. There aren't certain activities. Listen to me, there aren't certain professions. There aren't certain callings that are inherently more spiritual or sanctified than others. Leading a small group or preaching a sermon isn't more spiritual necessarily than selling car insurance or running a small business. Apostle Paul put it this way. So whether you eat or you drink, whatever you do, do all, he says, to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. What's he saying? That everything can be done to the glory of God, not just, check it out, missions or evangelism or church planting or preaching about Jesus, but anything and everything, even the ordinary things, the everyday things, I don't know, like eating a bowl of oatmeal for breakfast, drinking a glass of milk with your cookie before you go to bed, everything and anything can be done to the glory of God. How is that possible? How is it, you may be wondering, that eating and drinking and milking cows and shoveling manure can be on the same level as praying and reading your Bible and going to church? Like they all can glorify God. Here's how. Catch this. They can all glorify God. They can all be done solely Deo Gloria for this reason, because God himself is solely Deo glory in all that he does. What do I mean? I mean that God pursues his own glory in everything he does. And that everything that exists, everything that exists, in this world, provides occasion for God to glorify God. This is a God-centered worldview. It is the kind of worldview we see in our passage in Romans chapter 11. Take a look at our passage. Take a look at this passage of Scripture with me and see the God-centeredness of God that gives rise to soli deo gloria, not only for God, but ultimately for us 
as well. Take a look there in the passage with me. Look there, verse 33, 34, 35. What do we see there, verses 33, 34, 35? I'll put it this way. We see an expression of worship. You know it's an expression of worship because it begins to verse 33 with, oh, right? Like, wow. It's an expression of worship. Wow, Paul's saying, the, rich, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God, exclamation point. Wow, he's dazzled by everything he's just laid out in the first 11 chapters, culminating in verse 32. I wish we could dig down into all of it and talk about all of it now, but we're going to keep moving. But you see here, verse 33 and 34 and 35, an expression of worship. Then drop your eyes down to verse 36, the second part of it. Performing through him to him in all things. And then this is what I want you to draw your attention to. To him be glory forever. Amen. That is the essence of worship. Expression of worship. Wow, God, awesome. The essence of worship at the end of verse 36. To him be glory forever. Amen. And what's in the middle? If our sola deo gloria is at the front of that little paragraph and at the back of that paragraph, what is in the middle that gives rise to our life of worship? Answer, God's life of worship, you might say. God's life of self-exaltation. God's life of pursuing his own glory in any and everything that he does. As Paul puts it there, look at verse 36, the beginning of it. For from him... And through him and to him are all things. Supporting the expression of worship, supporting the essence of worship, God's soli deo gloria, that nothing exists that doesn't have its source in God. Everything's from God. That nothing is sustained in its existence apart from God. Everything is through God. And that nothing is sort of flying solo in this world. Not even my cats are flying solo in this world, right? Ultimately, under the sovereign orchestration of God, all that exists is to him. It is to God. That is a God-centered worldview laid out here in the first part of verse 36. And what the reformers wanted to do, what the Bible wants to do, is simply say this. That our solo dea gloria, our living to the glory of God alone, is rooted in the idea that God is glorifying himself in everything that God does. That God is sovereign in the world. That God is actively working in and through all things to bring glory to himself. And so we can join in God's soli deo gloria as well. Living in all of life. Everything, just as God sees everything as an occasion to glorify himself, so too we join him in that, seeing everything as an occasion to glorify God. Soli Deo Gloria. One of my favorite keepsakes I keep in my study here at church and up on the mantle uh, in my study at church, and it is a... It is a keepsake box that my parents gave me on my wedding day, actually, or the, the rehearsal dinner the night before my wedding. It has the date here on the inside, 5-31-97, May 31st, 1997. And 
It's, it's a lovely keepsake. It's a little silver box. Can you all see this? A little silver box that they gave me. And uh, inside I've got just some, some keepsakes and some mementos and things like that, uh, some notes and stuff. You know what I've got inside are just some special things like this little badge or band you put around, they put around Ezra when he was first born out of the hospital. I clipped this thing off. Moms, you know, you know this when you put on a, on a newborn. So clip this off and I keep it in here and, and just some other stuff. Uh, and one of the things I really like about this is that my mom and dad had engraved on the lid of this box my favorite verse of the Bible. Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him, soli deo gloria. To him be the glory forever. Amen. A wonderful reminder for me every time I, I take a look at some of these treasured mementos and remembrances and notes and that remind me of events and people and places and circumstances, all the rest of it, that it is all by and God and from God and through God and for God ultimately, for the glory of God, all these things that I keep these treasures in this box. And you know what else I like? Well, I like when I keep the silver polished. It's not very polished, but, but on the inside, right? This is what silver ought to do. It ought to, it ought to shine and reflect like that. I like it when I got the, the silver polished up because what you can do is you can see your own reflection in this thing. And I love looking down and seeing my person, my visage, my very presence with engraved, as it were, on me. From him, through him, to him, I exist for ultimately the glory of God, as do all of us, as do all of us. You see, soli deo gloria starts with God. God's own commitment to glorify himself in and through everything that exists. Nothing is outside of the sphere of God's sovereignty. Nothing is outside of the realm of what can and should glorify God. Listen, nothing is too trivial or too menial or too mundane or too everyday to serve the glory of God. Nothing, nothing. Well, almost nothing. Some of you may be wondering about the guy who goes in and robs a bank and cries on the way out like Solideo Gloria. Or the drug smuggler who has Solideo Gloria on his bicep as a tattoo. Do they glorify God? <laughs> or maybe more relevant, you're wondering if you can claim Solideo Gloria when your boss is not excited when he comes around the edge of your cubicle and finds you playing computer solitaire when you should actually be working. Is it solely Deo Gloria when you're doing that? Well, here's the deal. Not every activity does glorify God. But every activity, this is the reformer's point, can glorify God and should glorify God. Not every activity does, every activity can, that's amazing, and should. 
And it does when it, how should we put it, when it meets a few biblical conditions. And what are those conditions? Well, I'll tell you the first condition. The first condition is, relates with drug smuggling and bank robbing can't be for the glory of God, and it's this. Whatever we do can glorify God when we do it with integrity, with integrity. There's an important little passage in Colossians chapter 3. You may even want to turn in your Bibles there to Colossians chapter 3 where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is giving instructions in Colossians chapter 3 to the work world of his day, like advice and counsel and exhortation on the work world and economic arrangements. And it's framed up, of course, because it's in the first century in terms of slaves and masters. And what he says to slaves is hugely important and massively insightful, I think, and is where I get this idea of doing what we do with integrity that it might glorify God. What does Paul say? He says this, verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service, like when they're watching you, you're working really hard, and when they're not watching you, you're playing computer solitaire. Don't do it by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but, here's the phrase, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. That's integrity. When we go about our daily responsibilities, whatever they are, with sincerity of heart, fearing, reverencing, reverencing, honoring, wanting to honor the Lord in all that it is we're doing. Paul explains what it means to serve sincerely sincerely in fearing the Lord. Verse 23, the next verse, check, take a look at it. Whatever you do then, he says, work heartily as from, for the Lord and not for men. Work heartily. That's what it means to work with integrity. It means to work heartily as ultimately not for other people but for God. You're going to do what you do on Monday morning, and it's going to be solely Deo Gloria. It needs to be with integrity. It needs to be with a sincerity of heart. It needs to be done heartily, ultimately with an eye for the Lord, that you're serving God ultimately, regardless of who you are being employed by. Luther, again, remember what he said. If your job is shoveling manure, then do your best and shovel that manure for the glory of God. What is he saying? Do it with a kind of integrity. We might put it this way. Do your best and give your best for the glory of God. Do what you do with integrity, with integrity. The second condition I think we find in the Bible is this, whatever we do can be done to the glory of God when we do it. Check it out, with dependence. Not just integrity, but with dependence. Here, the idea is that whatever we do, we do it, whether it's caring for children or building a computer database, whatever it might be, that we do it with a sense of reliance upon the grace of God. By faith, looking to God to help us, to provide for us the whole of life being lived in dependence upon God. That's the idea. And when that's going on, we glorify God. When we show up to our responsibilities, when we show up to our tasks and we say, Lord, I, I, I kind of think I know what I should be doing. Like I, I've done this for the last like three years or 30 years, but, but I, today I just want to ask for your grace and help and strength again. 
Can you show up, God, and, and just help me rely upon your strength and power and grace, whether it's changing diapers, doing laundry, cleaning out the basement, managing the books at your small business, studying for algebra or chemistry or whatever it is you do. You do it with a sense of dependence. Why? Because dependence magnifies the sufficiency of God in our lives. The letter of 1 Peter puts it this way, chapter 4, verse 11, chapter 4, verse 11, 1 Peter, whoever serves, Peter says, whoever does any task or activity, any kind of service, let him or her serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Going to show up at work tomorrow. You want to do it solely, Deo Gloria? Do it in the strength that God supplies. Why is that so important? Because, as a pastor friend of mine likes to say, the giver always gets the glory. If God is the giver in your life, when you show up for work, because you're depending upon him to show up with you and sustain you and empower you, then God gets the glory. If the resources are God's, God gets magnified. If the resources are, in my case, Todd, Todd gets glory. Todd gets glory. And so starting off each and every day, saying this, Lord, help. <laughs> Punctuating each and every day, God, I need your help. Filling each and every day, even if we don't feel like we need help because we kind of have whatever it is figured out. It's not all that taxing or challenging or requiring courage. Nevertheless, a posture of reliance and dependence upon God, living our daily lives in dependence, whether it's changing diapers or repairing cars or pastoring a church, doing it with dependence so that the giver of the grace gets all of the glory. With integrity, we do it. With dependence. Thirdly, last thing I want to mention is we do it with gratitude. When we do what we do with gratitude, we do it solely Deo Gloria. You know, one of the most surprising things, at least for me personally, in the Bible is just how seriously the Bible takes ingratitude. Have you checked out how the Bible takes ingratitude? The Bible is not a big fan of ingratitude. It's kind of sobering because... I find myself slipping into ingratitude and presumption and just assuming, like, well, of course, the world kind of owes me all that stuff so easily. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul is kind of laying out the diagnosis, the condemning diagnosis of the world and its rebellion against God and its drifting from God and its dishonoring God and not glorifying God. And he says this, although they knew God, verse 21 of chapter 1 of Romans, although they knew God, they neither honored him as God nor gave thanks. As though the essence of honoring God, of glorifying God, of soli deo gloria is, the essence of that is gratitude. Which if you think about it, it makes all the sense in the world. If God is the creator and God is the sustainer and everything is from him, through him, and to him, and we are little worms. Depending at every moment, heartbeat, God is sustaining it. Every moment. That it only makes sense that we would honor this creator and sustainer and giver, much less this redeemer, 
with our gratitude. Like, thank you for another breath. Thank you for another beating of my heart. Thank you for the thousand things in my life that just come streaming in moment by moment by moment, all of which is totally unearned and undeserved. I love the way the Apostle Paul punctures the self-inflated balloon in 1 Corinthians in the Corinthian church when he asks them this question, what do you have, he says, that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? Or as James chapter 1 puts it, verse 17, every good and every perfect gift, which means everything, (laughs) everything, where does it come from? God comes down from above, from the Father of lights who does not shift like a shifting shadow. It is all, y'all, it is all gift. It is all grace. It is all to be received with gratitude, even the job that feels or the task that feels or the event that feels like shoveling manure. It is a kindness ultimately from God. It is a gift. It is a grace. It is all to be received with gratitude. Gratitude so that God gets all of the credit. Integrity, dependence, gratitude. That's how we glorify God in all of life. Whether we eat, whether we drink, whatever we do, it can all be done to the glory of God when it is done in that way. Integrity, dependence, gratitude, all serves to go soli deo gloria. And yet, if you're sitting there, you're probably thinking to yourself, I don't do that integrity, dependence, gratitude thing as regularly as I would like. Anybody feel that way? I had a dear sister after the first service came up to me with tears in her eyes, and she said, Pastor, I've been trying to avoid you. I said, I know, I haven't seen you around for a while. She said, you've been keeping track? She's been trying to avoid me because she's been, she's been falling short of integrity, dependence, and gratitude. We all fall short of integrity, dependence, and gratitude. We're all in it together. And so what is one to do? What am I to do when I lack the kind of integrity that I want? And fudge on little things and fail to be as faithful as I'd like or at other times lack the dependence that I should have as a creature sustained by the grace of God. When I show up and do something, I'm like, I got this. I got this. Back pocket. I own this. No dependence there. Or what's someone to do if So much of the time, you don't receive things with a sense of gratitude, like, wow, what a blessing, what a grace, what a treat, what a privilege, but rather live so much of our lives surprised and shocked when the world doesn't deliver it up on a silver platter. Like, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with God? What are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do when you fall short of these three conditions of soli deo gloria, integrity, dependence, and gratitude? What are you to do? Where are you to go? We talked about 
on the opening message of this sermon series. How Martin Luther launched the Reformation with the nailing of his 95 theses on the castle door, castle church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and launched the Reformation with his 95 theses. A couple weeks ago, we looked at one of the theses in the middle, talking about the treasure of the gospel. Today, as we're thinking about the question of what to do when you lack integrity, dependence, and gratitude in daily life, we want to go to the first of his 95 theses. Does anyone know what the first of his 95 theses was? It goes like this, quote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Matthew 4, 17, repent, repent, he willed, he intended, listen to this, the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. What's he saying? Well, he's taking issue with the way the Catholic late medieval Catholic church thought about repentance, that repentance was basically a process. You do repentance. Kind of sketchy translation of the Vulgate. Doing repentance as a kind of process you engage with when things get really sketchy in your life and you need to clean yourself up so you can represent yourself to God. I don't know, you might do it a couple, every other week or every other month. You, you kind of go six months, you're doing pretty well. And you might have to do repentance because you kind of messed up sort of severely over here or over there or something like this. Do repentance. Martin Luther, reading the Bible, looking at the teaching of Jesus and the nature of the Christian life, rejected that entirely. Repentance isn't a process. We occasionally do when we're kind of feeling self-loathing. Repentance is, as Luther put it, the entire way of life of a believer. One way to talk about the life of the Christian is as a life of faith from beginning to end. Another way to talk about the life of the believer is as a life of repentance from beginning to end. And so daily repentance Jesus, I'm not where I should be. Jesus, I need your mercy again today. Jesus, I need fresh grace today. Daily repentance is the only way to live solely Deo Gloria. Glorifying God in all things. Not an ideal we shoot for and only the super spiritual and faithful get it. Rather, it is a way of life which has at its heart and at its core the life of repentance. So that sole deo gloria is possible for you and me and it is possible, listen, through repentance. The way the Bible also talks about that is it is possible through repentance. Jesus Christ. To say it is possible through repentance is the same thing as saying it is possible through Jesus Christ. Always coming back to Christ. Always coming back to his cross. Always coming back to his grace and his mercy again and again and again and again. A life of repentance, a life rooted in Christ and his gospel. You know, next to Martin Luther, the greatest reformer was a guy by the name of 
John Calvin. You may know that name, John Calvin. He was arguably the better of the two theologians, arguably the more influential of the two on the history of the church. Calvin was also an active pastor, not an academic in a tower, but an active pastor, pastoring a church in Geneva, Switzerland for some chunk of his life. And Calvin was, as a pastor, pastoring these folks in Geneva, Switzerland, just as committed as Luther was to the truth of soli deo gloria, that all of life can be lived for the glory of God. I wanted desperately to find a juicy quote from Calvin like the dairy made and cows and manure shoveling from Luther, but Calvin was a more sort of circumspect guy than Luther, kind of watched his words a little more carefully than the at times bombastic Luther did, not as provocative, but no less profound than Luther. But interestingly, Calvin did something very provocative, you might say, at least by our standards, and very profound, to drive home the point to his congregation in Geneva that all is to be lived to the glory of God. Don't stay in a holy huddle. Don't run off to a monastery. Go out into the world as salt and light, living in whatever vocation or calling you've got as dairy maid or manure shoveler, all to the glory of God. The way he drove home that point was he did something very funny. You know what he did? After he got done saying the benediction and they had fed on the word of God and worshiped together as the body of Christ and prayed and all of the rest of it, you know what he did? He went around and he locked all the doors of the church so that you couldn't stay in the church. He had to scatter on mission in the world as salt and light. And when you were out in the world trying to live with integrity, dependence, and gratitude, you couldn't kind of flee back into the church until the next Lord's Day. Living in the world solely Deo Gloria so that not just when you take communion or sing a hymn or listen to preaching, but whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do it all to the glory of God. Because you do it with integrity, with dependence, with gratitude, all bathed and basking in a life of repentance, following God, in his soli deo gloria. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus our Savior who through his death, through his resurrection, through his intercession for us even now, makes soli deo gloria possible, makes living a life that brings honor and glory to you possible. That would be totally impossible for us fallen, sinful, broken creatures. As Luther put it, we have an inner curvature in our hearts that as a thought or a desire comes out, up out of our hearts, it has a way of bending back in on itself. I think we all see that in our lives. Not solely Deo Gloria, but glory to me alone. Forgive us for that, Father. Thank you, Jesus, for absorbing the Father's wrath on the cross 
in our place, in our stead for all of the billions of acts of self-glorification that I have indulged in and that the world has indulged in. Thank you that you atone for each and every one of them and thus bring glory to the Father by laying down your life with integrity and dependence and gratitude. And thank you now that you reign supreme and on high and are pouring out your Holy Spirit in the church and in our lives to enable us to walk in newness of life that we might be the kind of people you desire us to who live lives of love and live lives that bring you great glory. May it happen. Would you make it happen? Cause it to happen through your spirit and for the glorification of your Son, whose name we pray, amen.